0: While accompanying the prophet Elijah on his final journey, Elisha asked for a double portion of his spirit. Elijah told him that would be a difficult thing. But was it pride on the part of Elisha? Was it ambition? Or was it something else? We'll discuss that in lesson 29. He took up the mantle of Elijah. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to this week's podcast. So grateful to be back with you. I have had a very interesting process in preparing this week's lesson. I, I normally fit my notes on a single one-sided page, and I don't actually have to write super small to fit it all in. Um, it's the way I've always done lessons: is I is I write things on one side of a page, and I glance down at it as I'm as I'm going, and uh, I have. Two, I have both sides of the page on this lesson, and they're very it's very tight writing. I had to fit a ton of things in, so I hope I can fit everything into a single hour, and I may have to skip some of it, but that's not my way, so maybe we'll go over time uh I have an email to read to you from will. This is the uh most remote listener I've heard from to date. will lives in We war as he tells me to pronounce it, but it's It's written Wee Wah in New South Wales, Australia. Will writes, I live in a remote outback town in New South Wales, Australia named Wee Wah, pronounced Wee War. I have been serving in the branch presidency for the past five years and due to our branch being more like a twig, we only meet for a two-hour block and miss Sunday school and gospel doctrine each Sunday. And he finishes, he writes uh, several... Uh, wonderful things about what he's experiencing and then at the end he says the old testament to me has always been complex your delivery and deep knowledge make it easy for me to understand will thank you so much for listening i i don't know if everyone knows this but i actually speak australian so I, i thought i'd thank you in your own language and Will, we're grateful you're listening and uh it's it's good on you to have you here as a listener to the podcast and we're gonna keep trying to bring you the messages that you like and Bring you spiritual messages from the Bible and perhaps later from the Book of Mormon. Hopefully, you'll still be listening then. Uh, maybe you'll have a new calling. Anyway, that's enough, Australia. <laughs> I think I've embarrassed myself enough. But we wanted to give a big shout out to our most remote listener, and we're so glad you're listening. And I and I do want to say, it is my goal. The reason I do this podcast is, well, I, I've realized there are two reasons. Uh, Will's message helped me realize there are two reasons I'm doing this. One is as i always suspected to help people share my love of the old testament i've i've loved the old testament since i studied in jerusalem in 1997 and even before on my mission and if you go back to my first podcast you'll i, I tell those stories um but the the deeper reason is if the reason i love the old testament if i love the old testament because it speaks to me then i want to help it speak t- to you so that you love it as well and then the deeper reason is, what is it saying? The Old Testament, if the Old Testament is God's word, then there are things that it has to say to us. And I have felt my life enriched, and I have felt God's voice speaking to me in a way that it doesn't through any other work of Scripture. Not that the other works of Scripture aren't totally necessary for us and huge blessings. But the if God, if God has one extra comma to add to the things he said to me. I want to find it. And uh, so the other reason is to unlock all of the things that God might say to me and to you. And wow, we've got a lot that he's saying to us in this week's lesson. Uh, as always, email the show at gt at com. So we're talking about lesson number 29, he took up the mantle of Elijah this lesson formally starts in 2 Kings chapter 2 and then continues in chapters 5 and 6. We're going to go of quite a few chapters before and after that. The first chapter we'll begin in is in 1 Kings 19. This is where Elijah is... is you may recall that when Elijah defeated the priests of Baal, or, or dueled them, you might say, um, then he removed himself to Mount Horeb. And while he was there, part of his revelation was who he was going to anoint as the next king or who he was going to have anointed as the next king. And then who he's going to anoint as his successor. And that was Elisha. So he journeyed to the home of Elisha. And uh, the story of how he ended up there is in First Kings 19. The last three verses of the chapter, verse 19 1 Kings 19:19. 19, 19. He departed thence, found Elisha the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him. And he with the twelfth, and Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. So again, we have this imagery of clothing, the way people treat clothing, being almost having the force of covenant. Uh, and I, to be honest, I don't know exactly what's going on here. It feels like this has come up in my personal reading and in my studying for the podcast as well, enough that I I feel like there's something deeper going on and I just want to draw attention to it. I don't know exactly what it means. But so many times in the scriptures, they treat their clothing as though what they do with it is a covenant with God. And I think it's interesting for us to be thinking about and looking at and especially paying attention to in the scriptures. And this, this mantle has a lot of meaning in in today's lesson. So here's the first aspect of it is, uh, and I'll, I'll tell a little story here briefly about um, something that happened to me on my mission. The first book I read on my mission was the biography of Spencer W. Kimball. And I remember the, the part where he was given the calling to be an apostle. He struggled with that. It was difficult for him. He took several days. They gave him some time to think about it, to talk to his wife, obviously. And uh, I'm sure he accepted on the spot, but uh, he had great doubts that he was equal to the tremendous task that had been put before him. And so uh, he went on this spiritual journey of trying to get an answer from God that he really was called as an apostle. Well, uh, this That's exactly what has happened. The, the same office in the priesthood may, might not have existed. It might have, but this is the calling that's being extended. When Elijah catches up to Elisha on the as he's plowing and puts his mantle on him, he's extending the calling to be a prophet. And it's a, a daunting and huge responsibility that he's placed on him. So in verse 20, he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. And he said unto him, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? Now, so it's interesting. Jesus said, whoever is called and then, you know, looks back and has to kiss father and mother, um, he's not fit for the kingdom. So you might read that verse in that context and think, Oh, Elisha is having second thoughts, or maybe he's not fit for the kingdom. That's not exactly what's going on here. He says to Elijah, I need to go back and kiss my father and mother. But then what does he do? In verse 21, he returned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and gave unto the people. And they did eat. Then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. So Elisha says he needs to go back and say goodbye to his family, which would be totally reasonable, I think. Uh, But then he doesn't actually do that. First of all, we know that Elisha is if not wealthy, at least very comfortable materially. He's plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, but he's also willing to work hard. He has enough money to hire 11 people to work his oxen, and yet he's doing one of he's he's manning one of those yoke himself. So he's willing to work, he's comfortably situated financially. And what does he do before he leaves? He takes the instruments of the oxen which are the yoke and the the wooden implements used to bind these oxen to work together and he burns them and boils the oxen with that fire and then feeds it to the people. In other words he's not looking back. He's saying I'm I'm I understand what has been asked of me and I'm bidding farewell forever to my former life. I'm burning the bridges behind me uh and and then he runs after Elijah so we can presume i don't perhaps or maybe he just has tremendous faith but we i kind of think that he'd probably received his own witness from God before this point the prophet's coming to you and he's going to have something big to ask of you and he'd prepared himself spiritually and mentally for that for that event and he knew that he would be bidding farewell to his former life and he was he was ready to do that so it's just interesting to see how he received the call, and it's also interesting to see how the call was extended. So now we jump forward. the The stories for the next several chapters are about Elijah and Ahab. We we've kind of covered those, at, or at least uh, on a general in a general sense. But then at the the final chapter of First Kings, and as we discussed last time, First and Second Kings is really just a an artificial division. It has more to do with the length of a scroll in ancient Israel. How long? How much could they fit on a single scroll than it does about narrative continuity. This is really one book, the book of Kings, and it's split into two parts artificially. Nevertheless, in the final chapter of First Kings, well, let me put it this way. The next story that concerns our lesson has to do with Elijah... Knowing that he is going to be translated, and everyone also, everyone around him also seems to know this. And for some reason, Elijah doesn't seem to want to bring Elisha along, or perhaps he's testing him. But he gives him three opportunities to to stay behind. And he he starts out in the morning. He says, "Hey, I'm I'm going. Uh, I got to go. Why don't you stay here?" And Elisha responds with a powerful, powerful oath. He says. As the Lord liveth, and as I live, and as your soul liveth, I, I will stay with you. That you may remember, if you if you uh, grew up in the church and went to seminary like I did, but I learned this in seminary that uh, they they use this oath, this same oath in in the Book of Mormon. In fact, this is how they this is how Nephi and Layman they get Zoram to calm down. They say, as the Lord liveth and as we live, we're not going to hurt you if you listen to us. And so then he's like, okay, these guys have given a powerful oath. I can I can at least listen, and I know they won't hurt me. That kind of oath, if you hear that oath, then you know that somebody's going to keep it in ancient Israel. And when they say the Lord liveth, what they were actually saying was Yahweh. As Yahweh lives, and as your soul liveth. So... There is no more powerful oath. So he is intent on following Elijah. Nevertheless, Elijah gives him two more chances. And they go and visit what are called the sons of the prophets. And they go to Bethel, and then they go to Jericho. There seem to be these two groups of the sons of the prophets. And who are the sons of the prophets? What does that mean? Do they Are, are there that many prophets that they have children? What this is, is what's called a, a prophetic guild. And... It's, it's a school. It's kind of like Joseph Smith's School of the Prophets, where uh, people who volunteer to learn only about spiritual things, it's, it's almost like a yeshiva in modern Israel, a, a group of people who want to be rabbis or teachers. And they also know that over them is set someone who has the power of God. So in other words, it's not just people learning, but people who have pledged to become full-time disciples of the prophet of someone with not only knowledge, but priesthood. And they call themselves sons. Many times in these chapters, you'll you'll see Elijah referred to as father. And so this, this familial uh, wording, it sort of symbolizes their relationship, which is mentor to protege. And And Eli- Elisha is called to be one of the sons of the prophets, except he's Elijah's special attendant and, and accompanies him. He's almost like his companion. And so he says, no, I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. And Elijah doesn't argue with him. So we can get from this that he really it wasn't that he didn't want him to come. It was that he wanted to give him every opportunity to not come. It was a test. And Elisha was making a choice. What kind of life do you want? Do you really want to follow this, this difficult path that God has chosen for you? And Elisha was not only willing but eager to do so. So they travel first to the school of prophets in or the the sons of the prophets in Bethel, then to Jericho, and in both places they tell Elisha, Your master is going to be taken from us today. And Elisha says, I I know that. You don't need to tell me that. I'm well aware what's going to happen today. Interestingly enough, because we're not given the story around how they all became aware of this. Maybe they all, if they are the sons of the prophets, and we have we have evidence of prophetic guilds guilds even during the time of Saul and perhaps before but you remember Saul when he was called he saw the prophets walking along and he prophesied with them and he became one of them for that for that brief time this was also a prophetic guild and they seem to have had actual prophetic gifts where they could speak for God or were taken by the spirit to to make pronouncements um and that's what a prophet was in ancient Israel, not necessarily someone who predicted the future. We now think of prophecy as something that has to tell us about the future, which is the meaning of the word. But prophets do more than utter prophecy. They were meant to be mouthpieces for God, so they can speak about the present, the past, or the future. And a lot of times in Israel, it was the present. They would say to the, the king, thus saith the Lord, you're acting wickedly. So the it was the thus saith the Lord part and not the uh, the Lord is going to punish you. Part that was a, that was the definition of a prophet. So perhaps they all received personal revelation of what would happen to Elijah. In any case, Elisha follows him through all of these encouragements to stop, and they arrive at the River Jordan. Now we're in in Second Kings chapter one, and Elisha Elijah takes his mantle on, from his shoulders. Let's talk a little bit more about the mantle before we go any farther. This was Elijah, early in the book of 1 Kings, is described as a hairy man, and uh, as I said last time, I imagine him sometimes sort of looking wild, and he reminds me of John the Baptist. Well, if we look in the New Testament, we see the description of John the Baptist as somebody who's wearing a camel hair tunic or shirt, and which is a mantle, and having a, a leather girdle, and that is exactly how Elijah, or I'm sorry, Elijah, if I ever say Elijah or Elisha and you th- during this lesson and you think I should mean the other one, I probably do, because uh, I, I get things mixed up even when they don't sound so similar. But anyway, um, the description of John the Baptist, the physical description, and the description of Elijah are very similar. So uh, the there's some ambiguity about the word used for a hairy man. So Elijah is described as a hairy man. And the word for that is Baal Ser. And it can mean somebody who is a hairy man, but it can also mean somebody who has a hairy garment, interestingly enough. So he's somebody who's covered with hair, whether it's his own or that of his clothing. So that's that's an interesting distinction, um, and on a side note, the, why is that interesting? We'll get into it in a little bit because it, it does tie into part of the lesson. So there's a reason I'm bringing this up. But you you recall Jesus gives uh, what we what is commonly believed to be a paral, uh, parable, which is wolves will come unto you, or or these uh, false prophets will come unto you in sheep's clothing but inside they are ravening wolves. And this has actually become a proverb in modern English, which is a wolf in sheep's clothing. And so we always assume that Jesus is speaking figuratively when he's talking about the sheep's clothing. In other words, he's he's, descri- he's disguised as one of the flock. But it actually might be the case that Jesus was speaking literally because people during Jesus' time would have had the book of Kings and the description of Elijah to understand, this is what a prophet looks like. He's somebody who shows up wearing a leather girdle, wearing a, a hairy garment and looking wild as if he lives in the wilderness and is cared for by animals. And that is in fact, what John the Baptist looked like. And so this was a commonly understood paradigm of what a prophet, how a prophet would appear. And, so beware of those who come unto you in sheep's clothing. In other words, covered in a hairy garment that is made from a a sheepskin, who's wearing a sheepskin mantle. This might have been what Jesus meant. We don't know for sure, but isn't it an interesting idea that Jesus might have been speaking literally? Beware of people who come unto you who have put on the guise of a prophet, but they're false prophets, and inside they're ravening wolves. So that part, he was obviously speaking figuratively, but he may have been speaking literally about the garment itself. So, Elijah Elijah takes off his hairy garment, his hairy mantle, and it's made out of some sort of animal hair, and he smites the River Jordan with it. Now, it had been centuries since the River Jordan had been parted, and if you recall, it was Joshua. Shortly after the translation of Moses, Joshua took leadership of the nation of Israel, and the men carrying the ark, they had to walk right up to the River Jordan, and it was not until their feet touched it that it parted. They, they crossed over. We discussed that uh, a few months ago. And it has not been since that time. And the, the sons of the prophets, 50 of them are watching from a distance. Jericho is right on the river Jordan. And so they're either in Jericho or a short distance from it, watching this happen. And the the two prophets, they go together. And at this moment, Elisha says to Elijah, uh, or Elijah gives him one last chance to leave, and he says, no, I won't do it. And so then Elijah says, what would you desire for yourself? And Elisha makes an interesting request that I think is often misinterpreted. He says, I would like a double portion of thy spirit. Elijah says, you've asked a difficult thing, but if you see me as I go up into heaven, then you will know that it's granted. Now, what does Elisha mean? I want a double portion of your spirit. Many people think, and the book of Kings, the author of the book of Kings also seems to think, that what Elisha wants is to be twice the prophet that Elijah was. Well, double portion might ring a bell in your mind. We talked about this when we talked about birthright. The birthright son in the ancient Israelite tradition was given a double portion of the father's inheritance. So if there were three sons, for example, then it the inherent, inheritance would be divided into four and the oldest son would get two of those portions. And with that extra portion, he would be expected to care for his father's widow, his mother, and any female offspring that were still unmarried. So he had to care for his mother and siblings. In other words, those who got no inheritance. And perhaps, and be the, the patriarch of the family, perhaps over his brothers. Uh, and, and this was just the place of an eldest son. So what Elisha is saying is, I don't want to, not, I want to be double the prophet you are, which would be a prideful thing to ask and would be sort of against the, uh, I don't think he's comparing himself to any other person. What he's saying is, I want to be your heir. And I want to take care of those people in Israel who don't have an inheritance. So he might he might also be saying i want to be the one in charge or to to look after these these schools of sons of prophets uh, and i also there are there are plenty of people who don't have a spiritual inheritance like they do my brothers but the the normal worshipers of yahweh who are here in israel i want to be able to look after them the way that you have when you're gone i don't want there to be anything missing from their lives and so Elijah isn't saying it's difficult for you to receive my spirit. What he's saying is this is my interpretation, my my path has been difficult. So you've asked a difficult thing. In other words, you've set yourself on a difficult road. Nevertheless, if you choose it, then God will show you that you that you're called to that calling by letting you have the vision of me being taken up into heaven. So they cross the Jordan and then uh and and there's a steep Great on the other side. If you recall, Moses stood on the mountain there and looked out over Israel and saw what his people would inherit. So this would have been, and that's right on the other side of Jericho. And so this would have been where they were headed. And they probably went up into that same mountain. And so Elijah was taken up from very likely the same spot or, or the same area where Moses was taken up. And, uh, Elisha sees it happen he sees the chariot come down and take him and he and he says my father my father uh, again this this imagery of of Elijah as the father and and Elisha, Elijah's mantle falls to earth so here's another garment uh, symbolism Elisha rents his garment in two now rends and the uh this is a common if you look up the word rend in your scriptural search you'll see that anytime someone gets really, really upset, they rend their garments. And so that might be what's going on here. But it also might be a symbolic gesture saying, first of all, when, when Elijah first put his, his mantle on Elisha, he was saying, I want you to be part of what, what we would today consider my first presidency. I want you to be my first counselor and that was elisha's calling and he wore his own mantle which was the mantle of the first counselor in the first presidency as it were and when elijah was taken up elisha rends that garment meaning the presidency is dissolved this is how i'm reading this this chapter and then he takes up this is the title of our lesson he takes up the mantle of elijah so he puts on the prophet's mantle And he realizes that a new presidency has been formed. So then he returns to the River Jordan. The the prophets, the sons of prophets, are still watching from Jericho. And he smites again the River Jordan with this mantle, and it parts. And so they all see this. And this is important. It's not only that the prophet has a successor, but that the prophet is known to have a successor. And I believe that's why Elijah would perform a simple miracle for the, for the pur- purpose of crossing over Jordan. If you've ever been to the Jordan River, you can walk across it today. I don't know um, whether this was the case then, but it's a muddy river and it's slow. You can walk across it without ever having your head go underwater, without having to swim. So you would get wet for sure. It would come up to your waist or your chest, depending on where you crossed. But they could have crossed it without dividing it. And um, even if they had to swim a little bit, it's not a river with rapids that would drown you. They could have swum across, but they chose to part the river. And I don't believe God does miracles like this in order to satisfy people's uh, momentary whims, right? God has a purpose. If he's going to grant his power for a miracle to be accomplished, then that should have some spiritual benefit to the people who witness it and experience it. And I think these 50 sons of prophets needed to know that there was a continuation. Now, um, the prophet Elisha immediately sets about taking charge of the school of prophets. And, and they say, well, we're going to look, go look for... They know what's happened to Elijah. They know he's been taken up in a whirlwind somehow, whether Elisha told them or not. And they say, we're going to go look for him in case... This whirlwind has deposited him on a mountaintop or somewhere in the wilderness. We're going to go check for him. And and Elisha says, what are you talking about? Don't send anyone. But they do it anyway. And uh, they come back after three days. They realize, yeah, we can't can't find his body. And he says, I told you not to go. This is him establishing himself as the person in charge of their prophetic guild. Uh, Let's go back to parting the Jordan. Now, when you, whenever you see an episode like this or an event like this repeated in in such close proximity, then I, in my mind, a little bell starts to go off. Is this parallelism? And specifically, is this a chiasmus? So is the, and, and we have a lot of good evidence that it might be because there is a very natural inflection point, which is they, Elijah, Elijah, parts the Jordan, they go into the wilderness, and then Elijah is taken up into heaven. That would seem to me to be a very natural place to look for an inflection point, and then, they, and then Elisha comes back, parts the Jordan again. Whenever you see something like that that might be a chiasmus, then you can start to look on either side of that uh, of that event and say, are there more things that match up? And we'll get into why we would want to do that in this event in a moment. Well, actually, we'll do it right now because I talked about how um, Elisha takes. This is still we're still in First Kings chapter one, or we might be in chapter two now, but uh, we're we're right in the first couple of chapters of First. Or, I'm sorry, Second Kings, and Elisha has taken control of the 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 school of the prophets, and then he has, and then what? Something interesting happens, and I've actually heard this story used as I'm going to go into a pretty detailed and lengthy um, digression here, but I have a purpose, and and uh, I'm doing it on purpose, so bear with me. But there's an episode here that, that has challenged a lot of people's faith, and that's where um, Elisha is journeying away from the city of Jericho, and then some little children come up to him and say, go up thou bald head. This is the King James translation, go up thou bald head. In other words, it looks like some people are mocking him for the way he looks. And he curses them in the name of the Lord, and she bears come out of the wilderness and and t- tear up 40 and two of them. And you read that passage and you think to yourself, what? What? The prophet is walking along, people make fun of him, and he curses them in the name of the Lord, and then the Lord answers and sends bears? So this is a very strange passage. And there are people who... Uh, who have had their faith utterly demolished for far less. But I know that people have um, stopped believing in the God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament, because of verses exactly like this, and because of this this very verse, or these very verses. In other words, they can't believe in a God who would destroy little children for making fun of, a, of, a, of an old man. And neither can I. Neither can anyone, by the way. So... What is going on? Well, the first thing I would say is it's important to realize that if you do believe in God and you believe he's a loving God, then of course he wouldn't do that. So you may be missing something in what's happening, and there is a lot missing from this passage. And uh, we're going to talk about one attempt to reconstruct this missing context. But the point is context is everything. And even if we had context, when we read the Old Testament, we're reading uh, an ancient Hebrew text. And it would be like somebody from the middle of an African village coming to America, and you and I are having a conversation. And let's say they have a little dictionary that allows them to very quickly look up the words that we're saying. Does that mean we would they would understand our conversation? Especially if I were to throw in, let's say, a movie quote, or uh, a reference to an inside joke that you and I had, right? This There is a ton of cultural exchange that is going on with every conversation there is. And the, the Old Testament is certainly no exception to that. So you and I might have a translation of what the words mean in the Old Testament, but that doesn't mean we get the context. Hugh Nibley said about translation that anyone could do it, but no one could do it perfectly. And nowhere is that more evident than when we read the Old Testament, because uh, as I've discussed earlier, the Book of Mormon was written for our day. The prophet, historian, Mormon was inspired to write what he wrote in order to be interpreted and understood by a later audience. But that isn't the case with the Old Testament. It was written for their day. And so then, therefore, we have to work harder to unpack and to decipher what their messages and their cultural context would have been. So what's going on when when these people are saying, go up, thou bald head? Well, the, the chiasmus that exists is a clue. So if, if the parting of the Jordan in both directions is one event, could it be that if we went back a little farther, and the fact that these two scrolls, First and Second Kings, are one story helps us, because we can go back farther into the book of First Kings. Well, there's a story in the, book, in the end of the book of First Kings where Elijah is being compelled to come before the king because he's prophesied his death. And the, the soldiers come out to compel him to come before the king, and Elijah says, if I'm a prophet, then you can't compel me. In fact, if I'm a prophet, then fire can come out of heaven and and destroy you. And the, the soldiers are saying, well, you know, we trust in our earthly power, and we have 50 men here. We're going to compel you to come. And then fire comes out of heaven and and destroys them. So that is, and of course, these men were wicked, The were emissaries of a wicked, wicked king. So, for whatever reason that was their time to go. And I won't go into I'm going I'm going to recommend to you if you're interested in this exchange or in this story, um look up just go to Google and type in Fred Woods. He's an author. This is where I'm getting a lot of this stuff this week or about this particular episode. Fred Woods wrote an ep, uh, an essay called "Elisha and the Children." So, Google that and and you can read more about this chiasmus, I'm going to give you a few of the details that he goes into, but not all of them. So, um, if the beginning, if, if this is a chiasmus happening here, then the uh, the confrontation of Elijah with these soldiers would match up exactly with the confrontation of Elisha and these quote-unquote little children. Now, let's examine the word little children. The Hebrew term for little children is ne'arim ketanim, or the singular na'ar. And this is used, in fact, of Joseph when he goes to prison. So he's been sold into Egypt and he goes to prison and then a couple of years or at least two years later, he is brought out of imprisonment and then the word is used again to describe him as he interprets Pharaoh's dream. Now, Joseph's age at this point is at least 19, perhaps more. So, the word is tra- is translated into Egypt, uh, into English as little children, but isn't exactly accurate. Uh, they're people of indeterminate age. Um, there's one Talmudic tradition that holds that these men might have been water carriers in in Jericho, and just prior to this event, um, Elisha has performed one of his first miracles, which is to heal the spring in Jericho, and he pours some salt in there and declares that it will yield drinkable, potable water, and then from then on, it's delicious, sweet water, and these uh, these men were angry. This is not in the Bible. There's no, this is a little bit of speculation on the part of this, uh, the Babylonian Talmud, but uh, did he, were they upset because he had taken away their livelihood of carrying water to the people in the city. Well, be that as it may, um, let's examine what they said to him. Go up, thou bald head. Go up, thou bald head. Or the word is baldy. The word is uh, keria or keria in in Hebrew. And it has, as we know, in Hebrew, there are no vowels. So these, the three letters making this up are what we would call a Q or a, a "kuf." A Q or a K, an R, and an H. And pronounced Kyria, it is bald head. But if we remember the description of Elijah, it is that he's a hairy man. So what are they actually saying? What are these children, what are these youths, what are they saying? Why are they angry with, first of all, why are they angry with Elisha? We've we've given one reason why they might have been. And what are they saying to him when they say, go up, thou bald head? Well, go up um i th- i always assumed that this meant go on you know go on thou bald head whatever whatever that means that there, that there was some ancient hebrew meaning or that there was some meaning in king james era english that i was missing but actually there's not so we have to look for a meaning in the words go up well what what event have we just witnessed where somebody went up somewhere We've just seen the translation of Elijah. So one now this is an an interesting idea. This is our attempt. This is one scholar's attempt to reconstruct context where there is none. So and it's a valuable lesson, I think, uh, in in reading the Old Testament. So that's why I'm spending so much time on it. But the um, the word Karia is go up, thou bald head, and the hairy man of Elijah is having to do with his mantle. So what they're saying to Elisha is, if you are the successor of Elijah, then you should ascend to heaven too. But you can't because you're not a hairy man. That mantle you have on doesn't actually mean anything. You don't deserve it. So they're not saying you have a bald head. Or they in in this according to this interpretation, they're not saying you have a bald head. They're saying you're a baldy. You are not the hairy man. You are not the one who's worthy to wear the mantle that Elijah was. In other words, they are questioning the prophetic succession that God has ordained. Now, there's one more interpretation, and I think both could be true because they say these words twice: "Go up, thou bald head. Go up, thou bald head." Now, the the three-letter word kerea can also be pronounced differently as Korah. You may remember, we talked a little bit about Korah when we did the book of Numbers. In Numbers chapter 16, there's this prophet usurper who advances himself as someone who's just as worthy to lead the people of Israel as Moses is, and his name is Korah. And the earth opens up, and in fact, they use the same word, Tear, the earth tears up in front of them, just like the bears tear up these youth, and and they are swallowed up by the earth. So, number one, we learn from the episode of Korah how how seriously God takes somebody questioning a prophet's right to lead, and secondly, people of Israel have this—it's it, almost the 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 character of Korah is cited in later scripture as late as New Testament time. So he's mentioned in the New Testament as well as someone who tried to take away the, or tried to disgrace or cast doubts on the role of a prophet, the legitimacy of a prophet. So he was a well-known figure. So one idea is there are 42 or more of these young men, young strong, they might've been quite strong, And in fact, the word uh, that is used to describe them is also used to describe the guards that attend the sons of the prophets in other places in the book of Kings. So they might have actually been military men. They might have been threatening Elisha. Again, we're trying to reconstruct context. So there are some guesses that are involved. But they come out and they say, uh, ascend to heaven then, Baldy. Ascend to heaven then, Korah. In other words, you are not Elijah, and you are like somebody trying to take the you are like somebody trying to take the authority of the prophet like Korah did to Moses. Go up into heaven if you can. We don't believe your prophetic calling. And then what happens next is to me very reminiscent once we once we have this context, this possible context in our head, what happens next is very reminiscent of what happens in Alma chapter 30, where Korihor has said, I I don't believe in a God. Not only do I not believe in God, but you don't know if there's a God. If you do, if there is a God, show me a sign. And Alma says, okay, but if I show you a sign, it's not going to be on someone else's head. It's going to be on your head. And Korihor says, yeah, whatever. I don't believe that you can show me a sign. And then Korihor is struck dumb. And he eventually ends up dying because he can't talk and because people, he's disgraced. And uh, the this is very similar. Elisha turns around and says, I mean, he curses them in the name of the Lord. We don't know what the words of the curse are, but I can imagine that they're similar to what Alma said, which is, okay, if I'm not a prophet, then these words will have no effect. But if I am, then let God deal with you. And then bears come out of the wilderness and basically, this is God saying, why are you questioning my prophet? You don't have the right to do that. And the the consequence to you, not only you're questioning him, but you're threatening him. And that's not okay. So the, the I, I just went through this entire story to kind of illustrate how it is very easy, especially when we are reading a, a cultural and very context-laden document from text from ancient, in an, not only an ancient culture, but an ancient language, an ancient t- series of traditions that we can't possibly understand all of, we make a snap judgment about one event, and we think, God must be different than I ever believed. I don't believe in him anymore. Rather than taking what we know about God and realizing, there must be something that I'm missing here, what is the more reasonable approach? Isn't it more reasonable to say I must be some I must be missing something here. So when you read something in the you know early in the book of Samuel where it says an evil spirit from God came upon Saul and he tried to kill David. A lot of people have thought, oh God, you know, God sometimes he's just on David's side. And he he motivated Saul to try to kill him. Well, Okay, what's more reasonable? Is it reasonable to think that God motivated Saul to commit murder or that you might be missing something? So this is, this is my point is when we read a difficult passage in the Old Testament, the the first our first instinct should not be, oh God must be different than I thought. He he's not actually a loving God. Our first approach should be to think I might be missing something. There may be some context here that if I knew more about their culture and language, I could understand. And maybe that information is accessible to me. And I mean, wow, the idea of the things that I've learned in the last few days preparing for this lesson blows my mind. And the idea that, uh, that I could learn all those things right here in my house without having to go to a library. I mean, I'm old enough that I remember a time when this was impossible. So, you have access to the same information I have access to. Isn't that a miracle that we could learn all these things? We could have access to the sum total of the scholarship about the Old Testament the world over. That, that to me, is a miracle. But um, let's say nobody's figured out or the context is just lost. The more reasonable approach is for us to be humble about this and realize God is the same yesterday, today, and, today, and forever. And he's no respecter of persons. Well, that, okay, we've we've uh, spent the time we've spent and only gotten one page into the book of Second Kings, so let's move on. But um, Elijah wanted a double portion of the spirit, uh, or Elisha wanted a double portion of the spirit of Elijah, meaning he wanted to take care of the nation of Israel. He wanted to be the heir. He wanted to inherit that prophetic duty, and he did. Now, the, the author of the book of Kings seems to think that he has to show that Elisha is double the prophet that Elijah was. And some accounts, some tallies place the number of miracles of Elijah at seven and Elisha at 14. And um, some of them are double that. So Elijah has 14 miracles and Elisha has 28. It depends on how you count. And uh, I think it's interesting that there are multiples of seven in both cases, but it's fascinating because it's certainly true that, number one, two things are true. Number one, Elisha has more miracles than Elijah, and it's about double. And number two, the author of Kings spends more time talking about Elisha, Elisha and Elijah and their miracles and their prophetic calling than he does about any other characters in the entire book of Kings. And this is this is a book that spans centuries, and Isaiah figures into this narrative, other amazing and fantastic and influential prophets, and yet the most, the greatest amount of time is spent on Elijah and Elisha. So uh, that there's a message there for us, which is, number one, that what happened with these prophets is central to the goal of the author of Kings, which I, I have something to recommend to you, and I don't know if you'll have time to do it, but I, I highly encourage you to go onto YouTube and search for a video called The Bible Project just type in Bible Project Kings. It's an eight or nine minute video. It's one of those lectures where uh, an artist is animated. It's almost like an animated whiteboard where they're drawing things as the as the lecturer talks, and it and it sums up in very few minutes what is going on in the Book of Kings, what the goal is, and the goal is to show that the the according to this particular video, the goal of the author of the Book of Kings is to show. That the coming exile, so this book was written after Israel is conquered and taken to to Babylon. And the book of Kings was written to show this exile was inevitable. It wasn't an accident that God allowed the Babylonians to conquer Judah or that God allowed the Assyrians to conquer Israel. It was inevitable from the way they acted. And as part of that, as exhibit A, is, is Elijah and Elisha, the most powerful prophets According to the way they're portrayed in this book, the most powerful prophets in centuries, and the most wicked king. And so, you know, the the book is even titled Kings, the Book of Kings. And the if you you know if you were to go see a movie and it's called Annabelle, you would think it's, the movie is about someone named Annabelle, and maybe she's the main character, maybe she's the protagonist, or maybe she's the antagonist. And in this case, the Book of Kings is named. After the antagonist. The, the book is actually about the prophets versus the kings. And the prophets are saying, repent and live a righteous life, and God will bless you and bring about this Davidic messiah, messianic king. And the people are saying, what we want to do is to worship other gods besides Yahweh. And so that's what we're going to do. And we're going to have all kinds of wickedness. And then God says, well, I can't bless you. All I can do is keep bearing witness of my power and their impotence, the, the the impotence of these other gods that surround you. And that's what happens. And so Elijah and Elisha are the are the greatest witnesses in the Book of Kings of the divinity of God and the power of God, the overwhelming and majestic power of God to accomplish miracle after miracle, and things that are um, bringing someone back to life, shutting up the heavens. Now here is an interesting, two interesting, um events. Number 1. When Elijah returns from the from the wilderness after his famine, King Ahab says to him, "Are you the one that's been troubling Israel?" Now, this is such an interesting encounter because Ahab says this to him and he has put a price on Elijah's head. All of this presupposes that Ahab has 100% accepted the fact Elijah is the one that closed the heavens. Isn't that interesting? That Ahab believes Elijah has power from God to close the heavens. And instead of saying, wow, I must be the one who's wrong here. God has closed the heavens. And the person who did it, who I accept did it, is telling me a message of why it happened. And instead of saying, oh, you're the one with the power to close the heavens. Maybe I should listen to what you're saying. He says, I'm angry with you. I want to kill you. Now, isn't isn't that crazy? It's crazy. But he does it. And, and we have a similar event in the in the life of Elisha one of Elisha's miracles is to foretell for the king of Israel the troop movements and, and this is this is fascinating but the the king of uh, Syria has sent a number of has set a number of ambushes for the soldiers of Israel they're at war and it's not God's will that Syria would conquer them at this time. And so Elisha sends a number of messages to the king saying, don't go to this place, don't go to this place. And every time the king of Syria sets an ambush, it's they are able to avoid it because they know, it's as if they know exactly where it is. And in fact, they do know exactly where it is. And the king of Syria finally gathers together his closest advisors. And he says, one of you is a spy. I know it because they're finding all of our... our ambushes and they're springing the trap every time and we're taking heavy losses so who is it who's giving them our troop movements and one of them says no in fact there's a there's a prophet named Elisha who is telling him this and it's Yahweh it's the God of the Israelites who is helping them and so they send they send men to kill Elisha because they believe he's a prophet now here's another example and this isn't even the best example. There are two examples of this uh, in this event. But uh, the king of Syria realizes that somebody has God's power on his side. And rather than say, oh, maybe we should listen to this guy and see what he wants. Like, okay, God is not letting us ambush your country. Why is that? Why is God not letting us do that? And what is God's will? Rather than saying that, he tries to kill the person who's hearing it. And so this, this army, this is the, the famous story. The army surrounds Elisha. He's, it's known where he lives, and so they, they go and surround the city. And Elisha has a young man with him, we can presume from the sons of the prophets. And he says, Elisha, we're surrounded, we're going to die. And uh, Elisha utters those favorite, famous words, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them, even though the two of them are alone. And then he prays to heaven and he says, open, I pray that you will open the eyes of this young man. And then he opens his eyes and he sees horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. What happens then? The, the army is struck blind and Elisha is able to lead them right in the middle of Israel all the way to Samaria, the capital. And this army is surrounded by the forces of Israel. And then he takes the blindness from their eyes but he forbids the king of Israel from killing them. So they give them dinner and they send them home. It was a testimony to them that God is powerful. This was their attempt to convince them, hey, you should be listening to the prophet rather than trying to kill him, don't you think? And here's some proof that I'm a prophet. So do you want to maybe pay attention to that? Well, they don't. So they they get away free. And the king of Israel is so angry with Elisha because he forced his hand, he would not let, he would not give his permission, he would not give his blessing, his sanction, on the idea that the king of Israel can kill these soldiers who are now in his power, these men have been trying to kill him. So he's justifiably angry, but again, he doesn't listen to the prophet, and then, uh, or he does listen, but he, he has a terrible attitude about it, and he bears a grudge. And so the army, of course, comes back, these Syrians, and they lay siege to the city of Samaria. And the siege is so bad. This, this is, uh, I mean, I have to recount this event because it, it almost boggles the mind, but a woman is, the, the famine or the, the siege gets so terrible around Samaria, there's no food and everyone is feeling like they're going to die and they're starving to death and they're, um, the, the desperation, you may have read stories of sieges throughout history, but the desperation that happens in a city under siege is a terrible thing to behold. And the king is walking along one day, and uh, a woman says, Oh, king, I need your help. And he says, Well, I mean, if God isn't helping you, I don't know what I can do at this point. And the woman says, I need your help because my friend and I, we we made a deal she said to me, let's eat, let's boil, boil your son today and eat him. And then tomorrow we'll boil my son. So we boiled my son and then she hid her son and she didn't, she didn't keep her part of the bargain. And the king is just, his mind is blown that his, his, uh, citizens have reached this point of desperation. It, it, and I read this passage again, and it reminded me of a new story I saw where the 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 drug the person called uh, the cops on their drug dealer because he sold them drugs that weren't quite pure enough and the co- you know the cops obviously come and they say what are you what are you reporting this to us for this isn't our job to make sure you get good drugs and so obviously everyone was arrested but uh, the king is saying wow wow this we are at this point and so he blames Elisha and he thinks if Elisha has al- had allowed me to kill these men this army so he sends one of his ministers to go kill Elisha. And the minister shows up and he says, we're in such desperate straits. The king has asked me to, to come make you answer for the position we're in. And Elisha makes an intro. This is one of the miracles of Elisha. He says, by this time tomorrow, the, the food and everything that the people in this city are wanting is going to sell for cheaper than anywhere else. And you're going to see it, but you will never taste of any of it, he tells this minister, because the minister is threatening his life. And you read that and you think, what What are you talking about? We are surrounded by this army. There's no way food could come in here. In any case, then there are these two characters. They remind me of... It It is almost like comic relief in any movie you'll see. It's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern from Hamlet. These two men are... uh, they're beggars, and they think, well, let's—we're uh, going to die here. We might as well—we might as well go try begging in this army of the Syrians. And the worst they can do is kill us. But we're going to have a way worse death if we stick around here. We're either going to be killed by them when they sweep in, or we're going to starve to death. So let's go, let them kill us now. And they go out there, and they discover the entire Syrian army has run away, and God has chased them away with uh, these noises that they're hearing, and and miraculously made them leave. And they left in such a hurry, they left all their stuff behind. So these men loot the camp and then about halfway through the night, they say to themselves, you know, it actually would be pretty bad for us to loot the entire camp and not tell anyone what's going on that, you know, they might, there might be people starving. Yeah, you know, let's just loot a couple of tents and then let's go in and tell the people what's going on. So these men loot a couple of tents and then they go into the city and let everyone know. And within just a few hours, there's so much food and there's so much plenty in the city that Elisha's prediction, his prophecy, comes true. And the man who was sent to, to kill Elisha or bring him to his death um, is sent to watch over the gate. And the people are so anxious to get in and out of the city that he's trampled to death. So he sees, so again, Elisha's pronouncement comes true upon this man. Uh, the which brings up so this the story of somebody being in the Syrian king's court and knowing about Elisha who is that how do we, how do we, how did they know about that this brings up the story of Naaman and Naaman is a man who is a a general in the Syrian army and he has this terrible skin disease we don't know it's called leprosy but leprosy was such a general term in those times so we don't know exactly what was wrong with him but he has this incurable disease and it's disfiguring and it's uncomfortable and it's miserable but he's such a powerful commander and the Syrian king loves him And then one of the slaves attending, someone in the court says, it's too bad he can't go to uh, Elisha because, or he can't, he can't. Yeah, I think he does even mention Elisha. It's too bad he can't go to Elisha because there's a prophet in Israel and Yahweh is a powerful God, unlike, you know, your stupid gods you have here. And so uh, they could cure him there. I know it. And (laughs) the Syrian king eventually hears about this and he says, okay. So he sends a letter to the king of Israel saying, oh, I'm sending Naaman with this letter. And if you can't cure him, then uh, I'm going to sweep in and attack your country. And the Israel Israelite king is freaking out. And Elisha somehow either hears about it or knows about it prophetically and sends a letter and says, don't trouble yourself. Send this man to me. I'll take care of it. And then you know the story of Naaman. Naaman arrives and he's this prideful general and he's a He's a high up man in a country much more powerful than the place he is. And here he is in this little city uh, somewhere near the Jordan, maybe Jericho at this time. And um, instead of, and, and so he he's like, okay, fine. I'll go see this stupid prophet of whatever their local Israelite God is. And I guess, you know, the king has told me to come here. And the, and Elisha doesn't even come out to meet him. He sends a messenger and says, go wash seven times in the river Jordan. And as I said, the, the River Jordan, we we have such a, a romanticized view of it because it's where Jesus was baptized. It's the place where the Israelites crossed over. The River Jordan, the name is so iconic. The river itself is a muddy river. It's a stream about waist deep, So it's not dramatic. And Naaman says to himself, what? We don't have rivers in Syria? We have way better rivers. Why wouldn't I go wash myself in one of those? He, he sends a messenger. He doesn't even come talk to me. I'm a. Does he not know who I am? So he's leaving in a huff. And his servant says to him, "Hey, listen. If if this guy told you to do some great thing, if he'd sent you on a quest, you'd you'd be doing it, right? Why why won't you just wash, dip yourself seven times in the river Jordan? There's so much symbol uh, symbolism in this story that I don't even know where to begin. But he goes and dips himself seven times in Jordan, comes back. His his skin is clean as a, a newborn babe's, and then and then he comes, and finally Elisha will see him. Now he's passed the test, and he and he says, "Please take any gift you want. I have all this wealth. I have all this clothing. I have all this whatever you want. Do you want me to send gifts for you?" From I mean, his 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 generosity is overpowering, and he also says, "From this time forth, I am a worshiper of Yahweh." You've shown me the power, and and this is this is one of those uh, the the episode that this brings to my mind is the centurion who uh, comes to Jesus and says, um, "Will you heal one of my men?" And I know from being a commander myself that you don't actually need to come, but you can just say it here, and he'll be healed there. And Jesus says, "I haven't found so great faith among all of Israel." Well. To me that's what's going on here it's this man who who once he real once he sees the power of God even though he's not part of the chosen people quote unquote he says i am a follower of yahweh from this time forth and i have duties i have to take my master into you know his temple and i have to bow before his god with him so that he can lean on my arm but that's the that's the limit of it that's all i'm going to do i hope you'll forgive me for that so he realizes somehow he's heard of what when that Yahweh is a jealous god and that he cannot worship Yahweh and anyone else. And so he's saying to the prophet, he's saying, "I'm I have these particular observances that I have to perform, but I am actually worshiping Yahweh only, and I want you to know." And he's honest and he's upfront and he makes a, com- a commitment and he he makes a covenant. And Elisha says, "I I've I've accepted your covenant. Go in peace." And he won't take any of the gifts. And then one of his uh his In fact, one of his major attendants, the man who's been with him for years, runs after him and says, Oh, you know what? Elisha had second thoughts. Uh, Why don't you give me uh, some silver and some changes of clothing? And when he comes back, Elisha says, Did not my heart go with you when you went after him? So his leprosy will now be on you for lying about the fact that I wanted gifts and trying to take, take some wealth for God's miracles. Uh, a very, it's a very happy story and a very sad story. So um, first of all, he dips himself seven times, seven, the number seven shows up over and over again. It's a, it, it means perfection because it's the number of days that God took to create the, wor- the world. And on the seventh day, he said it was very good. So in, in Hebrew culture, anything that happened seven times was done perfectly or was done and perfect means complete. It means Whole. So it was fully done. The fact that he washed himself seven times, and it, obviously it's an arbitrary number. Elisha chose it, but then he, he dipped himself in water, which to us evokes an image of baptizing. He went and baptized himself where Jesus would be baptized, right? He, he was immersed in water seven times. So there's the cleansing imagery, and then there's also the, all the imagery and all the symbolism that comes with baptism, which is death and rebirth. And he's reborn seven times. He comes out of there a new man in more than just skin. He comes out of there spiritually reborn. And he says, I'm going to worship Yahweh the rest of my life. So this is a very fun episode. And it's also very sad because one of the, this was not just a test for Naaman. This was a test for Elijah, Elisha's attendant who to see if he could withstand, obviously he was vulnerable to the idea of worldly wealth and accolades and he felt like he deserved something for having served God all this time and he failed his test and Naaman this man who'd already received all these accolades and it was worthless because he had this skin problem he passed his test so the contrast there is so sharp somebody who'd served God for years and somebody who'd been this terrible general this cruel man representative of an evil power they switch places isn't that fascinating Let's talk about some more of the the miracles of Elisha. So he healed the waters. We talked about that. He There's this woman. Every time Elisha passes by, he has a common journey that he makes. She's a Shunammite woman. And he um, she realizes he's a prophet. And so she starts feeding him. And then she's, she says to her husband, don't we have a room we can put aside? And so he stays there every time. And she gives him free lodging and food every time he passes by. She's so anxious to serve the prophet. And finally, he says to her, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? What can God do for you? And she doesn't say anything. She's like, oh, you know, I'm just, I want to serve you. And he says, this time next year, you will have a son. And she says, don't please, like, look, this isn't, now we're not joking anymore. Don't hurt, don't say something like that because that would hurt too much if it didn't happen. Well, sure enough, that time next year, she had a son and the son grows up and when he's a little kid, you know, he goes out to see his dad in the fields, and he says, "My head hurts." And his dad says, "Well, we you know, run and tell your mom." And he runs home, and he puts his head on his mother's lap and dies. And the mother, what does she do? She says, "Put him in Elisha's room." She puts the body in in the room. She runs and finds Elisha, and he's in another town. She she brings, uh, and Elisha hears about what happens, and he sends the same the same attendant. This is before the episode with Naaman. He sends him to put his staff on the little boy's face. And that doesn't bring him back. So Elisha comes personally. And by this time, it's almost like Lazarus. He's been dead for days. And Elisha stretches himself out on the boy. Very, very similar to what Elijah did with the widow's son who who died. And brings the boy back to life. So that's another of the... And and so he loved this family and served them. And that's another... uh, you know, one of Elijah's so he he's duplicated two of the miracles of Elijah. Another one of Elijah's miracles was the famine. He said to the king of Israel, There will there will be no rain except by my word for three years. Well, Elisha says to this woman, Take your family and go, because there's going to be a famine here for seven years. So all of the all of the miracles of Elijah are being duplicated by Elisha, but doubled. And it's to show the purpose of all this is to show, the and I don't mean the purpose of God doing it. I mean the purpose of this being written and writ- sorry, written, uh being written and presented the way that it was is that the author of the Book of Kings is trying to show God's mercies are not lessening as the people get more wicked. They're becoming greater and greater. God is trying harder and harder. He's reaching his hand out farther and farther to see if he can bring Israel back from the brink. And Israel keeps refusing greater and greater outreaches, greater and greater attempts to bring them in to the fold of God. As, uh, as I- Isaiah says later, I- how often would I have gathered you under my wings as a, ch- as a hen would gather her chickens? And you would not. This is that same imagery, but shown uh, through events rather than through a metaphor. And that that's why all of these miracles were first relay. I mean, that that is why so much time, so many pages, are taken up with Elijah and then with Elisha to show that God's God's mercy is not decreasing. He he didn't give him one chance and then cut it off. It's increasing. So again, here we are with the uh, the evidence that we have of these. Um, two two wonderful prophets, the evidence of God's increasing mercy, and we're left with the the lessons that we've learned from previous studies of this this book and the ones before it, which is the nation of Israel is meant to us in the latter days. Our lesson that we can take from it, it is meant to represent each of our lives. So. What can we get from the book of, of Kings today? Number one, God's mercy is increasing. God didn't give us one chance and then say, uh, you know, that you had your one chance, I'm going to now shut up the heavens and you're, you're closed off forever. I give you one chance and then I'm going to give you an even better chance. At some point, I'm really, really, really hoping you're, you'll listen. And if you are cut off, if you're led into exile, in other words, if you forfeit the greater blessings of the plan of salvation, it won't be because God chose for you to not have enough chances. It will be because it's truly not what you wanted. It will be because you chose to turn your back on God. And you chose it several times. Look at your life. And if you look honestly, you'll see that that is true. You have had so many chances to follow God. And you have another chance today, right now. You're taking the chance. You're listening to something that has to do with the scriptures rather than doing all the other things that you could be doing. So God is extending his arm, and he's extending the arm through you to everyone around you. That's the, that's the state we're in as long as we're alive. We have this other chance, and we have even greater mercies coming our way tomorrow. We had Elijah today. But we have Elisha tomorrow. If we can do and Now, this is, this is really interesting. Two kings of Israel failed to do this with the prophet. If we recognize, hey, I know, I know you have the power of God. I know you, my bishop, my stake president, and, of course, my prophet. I know you have the power of God. I know you speak for God in my life. I know you represent the priesthood acting on my behalf. But um, I'd rather kill you. Now, we don't want to kill anyone, but I'd rather put your voice away than than heed God's counsel through you to me. I would rather acknowledge you have the power of God, you have the voice of God, you are the cause of my problems, and I would rather fight against it. Then humble myself and say, okay, how can I transcend what's going on in my life, that the pain that I'm being caused? How can I transcend that by listening to you? What pain is there in your life? What pain has God had to bring about in your life in order to get you to listen that you can stop by listening? That is the lesson for us in He Took Up the Mantle of Elijah. So um, there are obvious parallels in of Elisha taking up the mantle of Elijah today. Uh, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young is one that is commonly brought up. You know, we uh, after the time of Brigham Young, the prophetic succession was well understood, so there wasn't really any controversy when uh, John Taylor took over from Brigham Young. But when Brigham Young took over from... Joseph Smith, there was a huge controversy and there were several rival factions because the church had a lot of power over the hearts and minds of the people. And I would say it's important for people in the church today, not only to have a testimony of Brigham Young or of Joseph Smith, but also Brigham Young. It would have been like the people of Elijah's time, not bothering to get a testimony of Elisha. And then instead saying, go up thou bald head. We are, if we believe that Joseph Smith was... There were a lot of people... Let me put it this way. There were a lot of people during Joseph Smith's time that believed he was a prophet. They believed the Book of Mormon. And then they then they were like, wow, Joseph Smith uh, has said some things that I don't like. And Brigham Young has continued those things. And therefore, he was once a prophet and he isn't anymore. There are a lot of churches who still believe those very words. So they believe Joseph Smith was a prophet that he either fell from grace or that they can't accept everything he said, the Book of Mormon is true, or maybe it's a an allegorical work. It's not what it purports to be, but it's a valuable spiritual metaphor. So our testimony should include and and can include not only that Joseph Smith was a prophet, but that he remained a prophet. And not only was Joseph Smith a prophet, but that Brigham Young was a prophet at that point i think you can safely extrapolate because brigham young said the the means of succession is now established and if brigham if joseph smith and brigham young were prophets then every prophet that has succeeded is is obviously in that same category but if you ever if you ever wonder and I, and i do think our our testimony should include each prophet that comes in our lifetimes as well but if you've ever wondered, hey, I'm not sure about what our current prophet is doing, I bet you that your doubts would be reinforced by vi- revisiting the question of, is the Book of Mormon true? Is Joseph Smith a prophet? Is Brigham Young a prophet? And you can know by that, you can have your faith reinforced by that, that our current prophet is a prophet. Now, what does our prophet asked of us today? Uh, hopefully you have something that comes into your mind that, that Russell M. Nelson has asked of you, he has taken up the same mantle that Elijah had, which is to perform those miracles and see those things and reveal those truths that God would have us know and see. so can we humble ourselves? Are we going to be on the are we going to be the like the kings of Israel who know where the power is and refuse to follow it, or can we humble ourselves and say? I'm going to be one of the sons of the prophet who listens and follows, or I'm going to be like Naaman. Maybe I've been outside of what's going on, but I'm going to serve Yahweh from this day forward for the rest of my life. Having that level of humility is really the only way to fill our lives with those experiences where we're like the young man following Elisha who looked around and prayed to Yahweh and said, God, open his eyes. And he looked around and saw the mountain filled with horses and chariots of fire. It's the only way we can truly know and see that they that be with us are more than they that be with them. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.